The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. Great to welcome William Tunstall-Pedo to the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. Uh, William's claims to fame include in his first startup, uh, Evie, which he sold to Amazon, creating the AI technology that now powers Alexa in hundreds of millions of devices globally, coding the AI software that created the anagrams in the Da Vinci Code, and calculating that April the 11th, 1954 was the most boring day in history. Now, William's latest venture, Unlikely AI, They've recently raised 20 million from investors like Amadeus and Octo Octopus. This is William's most ambitious venture yet and could radically change the future of software and AI development. So, uh, William, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And just to kick things off, William, what inspired you to become a software entrepreneur? What were you actually doing before you founded EV or, or as it was originally called, True Knowledge? Well, I guess I started on this path when I was 13. So I started extremely young. Uh, the technical college next to my high school had a mainframe computer. The people who are at the sort of end of high school use it. They had special accounts. So I used to go in and sort of use this computer before school. And I also had a particularly good computer science teacher at my high school as well who had a little software business and every break and lunchtime, I'd be in the computer room writing software for his business. And because he, he was feeling a bit guilty about potentially exploiting child labor, I got a very big royalty. So I, I was been making money from writing software since I was uh, an early teenager. And then I went to university, went to Cambridge and did a computer science degree. And I've been doing it ever since. So I've, I've been writing software and thinking about how to push the boundaries of what computers can do since I was 13. And I'm now 53. So that's 40 years of doing that. And your transition to being an entrepreneur, what was it inspired you to go out and start your own business? So I guess that also dates from, from that early age as well. It was a small cottage business that was writing software that my computer science teacher had, and I was heavily involved in it. I've been interested in business from an early age as well. And I guess it's also about making things that are real. It's about making products. It's about making things that are used by people. It's quite different from the research mindset or the academic mindset. Which is, which is a very valid mindset. Uh, it is about pushing forward the boundaries of things. It's got less emphasis on creating products, less emphasis on creating things that are used by large numbers of people. So I, I care a lot about impact. I care a lot about creating things that are used by many people and have a big impact on the world. And business, for me, business entrepreneurship is the way to do that. Exactly. And we'll come back to that in a, in a moment. But I'm intrigued about your experiences at Amazon. So You've got this entrepreneurial mindset. Um, you talked about your passion for, for startups. After Evie was acquired, you joined Amazon. What was that experience like? What did you learn from your time in one of the world's largest and most successful corporates? So that was a, a very useful experience. And Amazon is an amazing business. But it was also a very big change. So I, I've gone from running you know, what was a 30-person startup to being in an org chart that had hundreds of thousands of people in it, literally. So Amazon is run as one enormous org chart with Jeff Bezos at the top, 
And there are people who are, if you look at the bottom of the org chart, there are people who are 25, 26 levels below that and had hundreds of thousands of people in it. It's now got over a million people in it, by the way. I am no longer at Amazon. I left in 2016, but it's now, this org chart has now grown to over a million people. And it's a, a very, very effective corporate, as you said. It's got a, a, a written culture, which is sort of permeates everywhere. It's so very focused on what works. The fundamental tenets of its culture is, is a focus on customers, which I, I really loved. It, it's a, it simplifies things. You can basically win every argument if you show that your point of view is best for the customer. You always win. There's no complication. If, you, if, if what you're doing is better for the customer than other people's, other people's ideas, you, you, you win the argument. So I loved it. There's many aspects of Amazon culture that particularly work for me as well. They have an emphasis on writing. The best thinking on any topic is, is written up in a memo. That memo is edited and it evolves from meeting to meeting and you end up with a, a piece of writing that, that encapsulates the best thinking on every topic. So there's things like that that are slightly eccentric or people consider to be slightly eccentric that I absolutely loved. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. And I was there for three and a half years, and I, I learned a huge amount when I was there. Now, you have a vision to make computers do innovative things and to create magical products, products that positively impact the lives of billions of people. It's such an inspiring vision. How and when did you come up with this ambitious vision of the future, of your future, of your business? I've been thinking broadly about this for a very long time. So my first startup, you mentioned also had a very big vision that was about the science fiction computers that you see that you can just speak to, that you can communicate with, where language is used completely naturally. So that resulted in an Alexa, ultimately. It was a 10-year journey, it resulted in Alexa, which, which you could argue is, is a sort of version 0.1 of the Star Trek computer. It is the sort of science fiction vision of machines that you speak to coming to, coming to life. And I, we're still keeping a lot of what we're doing at Unlikely AI under wraps, but there is a, AI is on a path at the moment that's, that's all about a very particular class of techniques called machine learning and producing bigger and bigger models. And one particular machine learning technique, which is called, which is called neural nets or deep neural net, deep learning. And although that path is producing some amazing results, it's very unclear that the the sort of human-like intelligent machine will result from just using bigger and bigger models and iterating along that path. So we're doing something that's, uh, we're exploring a different path and it's got a lot of promise, which is why we were able to raise a very big round recently. And that's essentially what we're doing. And I know that culture is really important for you. You mentioned the culture at Amazon a few moments ago. You're focused on culture, unlikely AI. You've codified the culture. It's got a very prominent position uh, on the website. So I'd love to hear more about the culture you're creating at Unlikely and, uh, and what your thinking was behind literally writing it all down, giving it such a prominent position. So part of the reason for writing it down uh, was partly inspired by Amazon. So Amazon does this. Amazon has what they call their leadership principles. And the leadership principles are a mixture of things that are our choices. I mentioned previously that Amazon focuses on the customer. It's a sort of customer-obsessed organization. That's definitely not the only way to run a business. You can focus on revenues. You can focus on competition. You can focus on products. It's one way of producing a successful business. And by, by stating it, by putting it in writing, you make it clear 
what's expected and you also create something that you can hire against when you're looking for talent you can look for talent that that also has also shares that that view of the world and it's also used heavily inside amazon for for things like uh performance reviews and things like that partly inspired by being at amazon and seeing that working really well i wanted to make it very clear what i was building with my startup and other companies do this as well of course so we've got a, a similar set of principles they're definitely not the same as amazon's uh, they vary in certain ways, but it's about, you know, we're looking for, for people that can think really big, that are unafraid uh, to, to shoot for very big things. We're slightly contrarian, as you can probably tell by the name of the company. We like doing things in a slightly contrarian way. We have a big focus on talent, high standards, and we also have a focus on product. We, unlike Amazon, want to create magical products as our primary focus. So more like Apple than like Amazon. And that's the goal, is to create products that, that do amazing, magical things, amaze customers, delight customers that way. So that's what we're focused on, creating technology that, that enables, enables magical things to be done. Clearly, Steve Jobs' product design philosophy has had a major influence on you. And yeah, there's, there's an, not only is an element of amazing focus on detail and creating magical products, there's also uh, an amazing, he was also an amazingly effective showman as well. So he also sort of added to the magic by presenting them in a way that showed them at the absolute best. I guess if you're building a company that's combining some of the best ideas from Apple with some of the best ideas from Amazon, you must be onto a winner. So uh, <laughs> exciting times. Now, you're very active in mentoring and investing in other startups as well. I know the startup community in its wider sense is really close to your heart. So what drives your passion for the power of entrepreneurship. So when I left Amazon, that was that was the end of more than a decade. It was a sort of decade-long entrepreneurial adventure that started with a tiny startup and ended with a product that Amazon that everybody's heard of and Amazon had sold hundreds of millions of devices. So I had a completely open calendar. I had no commitments and I was invited uh, to go along to this organization called the Creative Destruction Lab, which is bizarrely is a non-profit with a very capitalist mission, which is to maximize the equity value of startups uh, that they help. So I was flying to Toronto for, for five years, five times a year to help these startups, mentor the founders, set objectives for them. And I found that incredibly useful. I, I was exposed to all of these sort of early, lots of early AI startups. So I got a very, very good understanding of what the state of the art is from, from startups that were trying to push the boundaries. And I'm a big believer in startups as a mechanism for pushing forward the state of the art. That I think it's an ideal, ideal medium for that. You, you sort of find out what's possible. You create a product that, that you create a technology that's that's very new. You create a product that hasn't existed before. You're forced to find customers for it, which makes it real. So I'm I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship as a way of way of improving the world and pushing forward what's possible with technology. I made some money when my business was acquired by Amazon as well. So I also had some some capital which I could invest in early startups. Which is also a way of helping. I, you know, I get to get on the cap table, get to talk to the founders, get to help the founders. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of that as well. I'm a member of Cambridge Angels. I've been doing a lot of angel investing. I've got investments in over a hundred uh, startups now, as well as mentoring many, many hundreds of startups through the Creative Destruction Lab. It's been extremely useful for me, and I, it's something that I really enjoy. But I also miss the ownership. So, you know, I had my, I had my, I had the ten-year journey of my first startup where I was very, very deep on one enterprise. And then I've had this very shallow experience of investing in a hundred other startups and mentoring hundreds of founders. So I've got this very broad, but very shallow experience. 
And what I found is I missed the ownership. So when I'm talking to a, a company that I'm investing in or where I'm mentoring the founders, I speak to them. It's a, it's a high high impact activity. Often often I can help a startup quite quite materially in sort of a half hour call or one hour call. But then I'm not thinking about the business again afterwards. I don't think about them again until I speak to them again, you know, two months later, while they are the ones that are eating and breathing what they're doing. And they're the ones that have to make the decisions that, that, that steer the startup, make it successful. And I, and I miss that. So I miss the ownership. So I miss that sort of deep ownership again. So I've gone back into that, which is what, what Unlikely AI is. It's uh, it, another, another deep experience, I hope. You've raised a really good round of funding during a pretty challenging period for fundraising. What was that experience like? How, how have you found the fundraising market in recent times? But also, how did this experience compare to the experience you had a decade, decade and a half ago raising money for um, True Knowledge? It was very different on many dimensions. So my first startup, which, which as you say, is called, was called True Knowledge when I was raising money for it. It changed its name to EV just before it was acquired. When that was happening, the number of sources of funds that were available in the UK, venture capital funds, was really small. There was maybe only two or three funds that were, that were around, and not all of them were active. So the number of sources of money was really quite small. This time around, my spreadsheet got to 50, 60 sources of finance, and there were many more. That I I didn't list or couldn't, which I knew were out there, but didn't have an introduction to. You know, not that I spoke to that number, but there, there were there were like there's maybe a hundred sources of of finance or potential sources of finance for startups now. It's it's night and day in terms of the amount of finance that's around. So that's the kind of macro trend over ten or fifteen years in the UK. The amount of venture capital, particularly for early stage, is dramatically more. In terms of the current economic issue, that was definitely a challenge. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine. The economy was all sorts of problems with the economy. As you're financing, that's obviously a concern. Fortunately, there was enough interest in the round that it didn't seem to matter too much. Uh, and also, fortunately, we're quite early stage. So the fact that the stock market was going down dramatically it was, was less impactful than if we'd been a later stage company. Obviously, if we were kind of looking to IPO next year, the valuation is dramatically affected by what the current stock market is. If you're in a very early stage deep technology company, as we are, quite some years away from IPO, it's much less affected. Uh, and there's also a lot of money around. So there are also a lot of funds out there looking to deploy their capital. The fact that the economy is not going so well, or the stock market's going down, doesn't really change the fact that they've, they've got their funds allocated and they need to invest it. So it's definitely, it definitely has a negative effect, but it's not quite as bad as if you're a late-stage company close to IPO. In our particular case, we didn't have too much trouble raising money at all. In fact, we were oversubscribed. As you said, we raised, raised what is a really big seed round, $20 million, and we were oversubscribed. We had to actually turn investors away. That's partly due to the fact that we're doing something very big, which is something, which, as I explained, is something that, I, I, that really motivates me. And if you are doing something really big, incredibly really big, it's, it's easier to raise money because investors can see that possibility, and it's exciting. And it's how the venture capital world works. Well, that's a brilliant position to be in. I'd like to go back in time and hear more about the Da Vinci Code. How did you and your code get involved in, in that project and appear in the book, the movie? Yeah. So when I was in my teens, I was doing things that were really interesting technology, but not necessarily very big markets. So one of the things I, I created 
was software that created that rearranged the letters of anything you typed in and said weird and wonderful things about the subject that you're typed in, which was really fun but didn't have a big market. So it was an anagram generator. Uh, it was called Anagram Genius. Uh, it used AI to to do that that task, and it created lots of amusement. People enjoyed it. It was particularly good at creating satirical anagrams, but it could also create all sorts of other ones. And I was selling that in my twenties. That was something that my my business was selling, and that piece of software continued on. It still just about exists. And one of the customers was Dan Brown. So Dan Brown bought this software, used it to create the anagrams that were kind of integral to the plot of the Da Vinci Code. He was in touch with me before the book was published to tell me what he'd done. I was credited in the book, and the book was amazingly successful. It sold, I think it sold 80 million copies in a very large number of languages. And my name was in the credits at the start of the book, but they didn't say they didn't want to spoil the plot by saying it was for anagrams. So they just put my name in the credits. He just put my name in the credits. So people would read the book. I have a very distinctive name. So anybody reading the book who knew me would see my name on the sort of third page where the acknowledgements were, realize I'd contributed to the book in some way, but wouldn't know how. They were wondering if I was you know, a member of one of the religious organizations mentioned in the novel. And when that, when that novel was, was hot, a lot of people were reading the book. So I maybe got 30, 40 people approaching me saying, why are you in, why are you in the acknowledgements? In fact, I had about 30, 35 people say, William, why is your, why is your name in the acknowledgements? How did you contribute to the Vinci Code? William, uh, what did you do that got your name in the acknowledgements? And then the 35th person who uh, came to me said, William, she said, did you know that there's somebody out there with exactly the same name as you? So anyway, so yeah, I got lots of mileage from that. I got almost no money from that. I think the only thing, only money I got from that was Dan Brown buying a single copy of the software. But look, that was quite that was quite an interesting period when that book was really hot. And then when the movie came out, they spent they had a budget of eighty million or something for the movie, or hundred million for the movie. They used all the anagrams from the novel unchanged. So all of the anagrams that were generated by the software in the novel were also used in the movie. Amazing. We've talked a bit about science fiction at times during this conversation. So I'm going to ask you my back to the future question. If you could go back in time and speak to your you know, 20, 21 year old self and give the young William some advice from all the decades of experience you now have as an entrepreneur, mentoring other entrepreneurs as well. What's the one key piece of advice you'd love to give to young William about all the lessons you've learned over the, the subsequent decades? I think I'll go back to what I was just talking about. Think big. I think thinking big is the key key thing that I've learned since I was 20. So not not writing software that makes anagrams with a very small market, but trying to change the world with with really with technology that has the potential to really make a difference. Great answer. Well, William, thanks so much for joining me today, sharing your think big vision. I'd like to wish you and the whole team huge success transforming software and, and AI for generations to come. Thank you, Gary. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. <laughs>